Welcome to the Centuries of Sound radio podcast, the mid-monthly show where we discuss and give some context to these records. My lord and gentlemen, Centuries of Sound. If you enjoy these programs, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. For $5 or local equivalent per month, you can get full downloads of mixes and these radio podcasts a year earlier. Centuries of Sound is an independent podcast without any advertising, and it's only with the support of patrons that the show can survive. Find out more at patreon.com slash centuries of sound. Centuries of Sound on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello and welcome to Centuries of Sound, the show where we use original recordings to travel back into audio history. I'm James. And I'm Sean. And today we're covering the year... 1900. So the year 1900. Is this the new century? Uh, What do you think? It's quite difficult to say, really, because obviously it is numerically a new century. If you mean, does this mark a new era? Most historians say you've got to go up until about 1914. The the problem with centuries, of course, comes because uh, the first year was AD 1, or 1 AD, it wasn't 0 AD. It's a new decade, we can mm-hmm. say at least. Everything we, we've heard so far in this show in the 1800s is starting to change. And you might notice, a, yeah, we, we saw lots of changes in the last episode. Mm. And uh, this time we're going to see even more changes in a few different ways. Not quite as uh, dramatic as last time, perhaps, but very much moving on. Changes that haven't quite filtered through entirely to the music we're going to hear, but which are going to turn everything upside down. The beginnings of a music business or a music industry, in terms which are much more familiar to us than anything seen so far. All due to the kind of duplicitous shenanigans which will also seem typical of the music business in the 20th century. So what else is going on in the year 1900? Well, as you say, obviously it's the turn of the century uh, in England. Britain, I should say. We have the first meeting of the Labour Party, uh, mm-hmm. which is, is in February 27th. And they're still going, the Labour Party? They are still very much still going, still very much alive. Um, right. They don't really elect... They're not a proper electoral force at this point. In the next general election, they will have a total of two MPs. And this is... Uh, we're still talking about 1900 here, yeah? Still 1900, Right, yep. okay. Uh, but yes, this is the first meeting of... The of what one might call a working man's party. Up until now, the working men have voted either liberal or conservative, really depending on the issue of the day. Um, they tended to vote liberal more than conservative. Um, and they that they're, they're all allowed to vote now. Uh, pretty much, if you're a man, you're allowed to vote now. If you're a woman, you still got to wait a good long while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, almost every man is allowed to vote now unless you're in prison. But no, this, that that is the mark of what will become the 20th century, which is the rise of socialism and working men's groups uh, very much a preoccupation certainly the first three quarters um so that's quite big in Mm -hmm. terms of that we also have the second olympic games in paris Uh uh they're not very big at this point the first olympic games four years earlier was announced a great fanfare in athens but this time Mm. this is just a side to the paris world fair Mm. the olympics have become popular really for another eight years but this is the second modern olympics there were very met, there were loads of strange uh, disciplines in this Olympics, I believe, if I remember right. They had uh, painting and poetry, mm. things like that. All part of the original Olympics, to be fair, mm-hmm. but not not our modern um, Olympics. In the same way, the Labour Party shame. of 1900 is not the modern Labour Party, but this is the emergence of two 
mm-hmm. distinctly modern. You know, I would watch more of the Olympics if they had a wide, wider range of things they were judging there. I think we should bring back poetry to the Olympics. I think so. Yeah. And I think they should have a freestyle event where you just do whatever it is you're good at. <laughs> a talent show. <laughs> just The just, world's got talent. If you're good at running, you do running. If you're good at like flipping beer mats, you can flip beer mats. If you're good at making speeches, you can make a speech. You know, that kind of thing. It would be brilliant. I can see that. That would be the the best event, I think. Yeah. Um, Okay, what what else is going on in 1900 apart from that? Is there anything else to report? Um, There's another US presidential election. William McKinley resoundingly beats William Jennings Bryan in in a rerun. Um, His vice president this time being a young Theodore Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. who we'll hear more about in future episodes. Okay, Um, and we'll hear more about this uh, William Jennings Bryan a bit later. Yes, we will indeed. Mm -hmm. Um, Other events to follow, I believe. Yes, they are. Events continue to proceed. Mm-hmm. Let's have a bit of music then. We yes, haven't had please. any music yet. Uh, at this time, most of our artists are working for uh, Edison's recording label. And uh, many of them have names which are his house bands. This is the Edison Grand Concert Band. So I believe that includes a couple more players than usual, maybe uh, six or seven rather than the four we've got accustomed to. And uh, the song is called Mr. Thomas Cat. It's... Uh, got a tinge of ragtime to it it's got that kind of a uh, jaunty rhythm and it, it, a bit of a kind of solo towards the end of it mm. so uh, it does sound uh, a bit different from what we've been listening to in previous years let's give it a whirl Mr. Thomas Cat by the Edison Grand Concert Band there. What did you make of that then, Sean? It was quite rousing and exciting, I thought. Um, 
Yeah, rousing in a more uh, loose and free-flowing way than yes. the rousing military kind of style we've got used to, mm. I'd say. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, they still have the man announcing at the beginning. That's They do, um, right up to 1910 on cylinders, mm. although we do also have disc recordings now. So what is the story of these discs and cylinders? Well, we have the, these two competing standards right mm-hmm. now. Uh, of course, Thomas Edison... He has his uh, wax cylinders, but now we have Emil Berliner's flat discs. An early version of the um, 78 RPM discs, the uh, shellac discs, which right. you may be, which you may know, uh, dominated for the next 50 years or so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a, a long time for a format to be dominant. Oh, it's amazingly, albums mm. are only from 1950 or so. Really? So there's no albums before 19. 19- well. It's a lie. There's no LPs before 1950. There are albums, which is like a book of 78s. Wow. Oh, so that's... Emil Berliner, who is he? Well, Emil Berliner is a German inventor. He was born in Hanover in 1851. And uh, the, the uh, Franco-Prussian War came along when he was 18 years old. So he decided to emigrate to the USA instead of being drafted for that. Um, as he was already a budding inventor, he found work for the sometime Edison-affiliated Bell Telephone mm. uh, after he invented an improved telephone transmitter. So he had a hand in the invention of the microphone, really, there. Um, But he went on his own way pretty soon. In the 1880s, he developed a disc recording system. So this is the the days when the cylinder is still on the drawing board, really. And his disc recording system uh, produced playable discs by 1889. And he went into business with uh, Kammer and Reinhardt, a German toy maker. And they made five-inch rubber discs but they never really sold them. This venture didn't last very long. Then uh, in the 1890s, he started to try to form some companies. There was one called the American Gramophone Company, which again failed before issuing a single machine or disc. The next one in 1894 was a bit more successful. It was called the United States Gramophone Company, and they started to sell some machines and 7-inch hard rubber discs. And in 1895, they replaced the rubber with shellac, which worked better. And that remained the standard until the 1930s. So it was going through a long way. So you think Emil Berliner is going to be a massive success now? Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, no. Yes and no. Um, The production started to increase. But in 1897, his mastering plant in Washington burned down, which destroyed all of his equipment and the masters of his recordings, which is... Bad. (laughs) Yes, to put it mildly. So that wasn't the end, but the end was coming pretty soon. He managed to resume production in a few months. But next problem he had was that companies began to copy his invention. Uh, Copyright was not very well worked out in these days. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did what he could. He shut down two of his operations before finally finding that his agent in New York, uh, Frank Seaman, was manufacturing identical copies of his gramophone called the Zonophone. You might have heard of a... There's a various record labels called Zonophone mm-hmm. something in the early days as well. Oh, so no. it comes from that. So uh, he decided to combat this by cutting off all supplies to New York. So then they sued him <laughs> for breaching contract. <laughs> and uh, they got an injunction and it all kind of collapsed. And it meant that the United States gramophone company went out of business. <laughs> So they were copying his stuff and they managed to get an injunction on him? Uh, Yes, they had better lawyers, it seems. Um, He tried to lift the injunction, but it didn't work. There was nothing he could do. And uh, he quit the business entirely. He transfers his assets to some guy called Eldridge Johnson, who will be around a bit later. 
And Eldridge Johnson uh, launched the Victor Talking Machine Company, who is the predecessor of some very famous record labels. So they were quite successful. Um, so for now, he's not doing much. He does continue to be influential in the music business. He's a leading light in creating disc records. Mm. But at this point, he's been uh, shut out of the business kind of unfairly. Um, so in 1900, the gramophone's patent is now unenforced. And uh, we could say recorded sound technology is in modern terms open source. Anyone could open a record company and even a record uh, a record player company. And many did. So in the coming years, we'll hear recordings from all manner of labels around the world. So that is good. <laughs> yes. Um, Except for for Berliner. For Emil Berliner, he'll find his way to continue in the business. His uh, his patents for various things will keep him going. Oh, good. Um, but yeah, the technology is open source now, so uh, we will have an explosion of recordings now and much more to choose from. The limited selection we had so far is uh, less than desirable, so thankfully we'll have more to be able to play to now. Let's have some. Uh, an example of one of the big hits of this year. It's a two different versions of it. Um, if you were listening last time, uh, Sean was unfortunately sick. Are you okay now? I am. I am fine now. I've recovered from the rabies I had. Okay. <laughs> really? Wow. It's the, they put you into a coma. That's the only way they can cure rabies, isn't it? I heard this been done a couple of times. Has it? Wow. All right. So let's hear one of the big hits of this year, actually yes. written the year before. We've spoken before about Arthur Pryor. He's yep. the leader of Sousa's band and he's uh, starting to bring kind of ragtime stuff into these military military marches. And uh, this, is a so this is one of his biggest hits. Unfortunately, it has a horrible racist name with a racist epithet in it. It's called a Coon Band Contest. We're going to hear two versions of this. One of them is by the banjo maestro Vess L. Osman, mm -hmm. and the second is by Sousa's band, led by Mr. Arthur Pryor himself. So uh, let's have a listen to those two. It is a good, a good rollicking tune with an unfortunate racist name, like many things at this time. Arthur Pryor's Soon Band Contest, led by Vess L. Osman, the banjo king. <laughs> Thank you. 
Columbia Records. So that's two versions of the rather racistly named A Coon Band Contest. Uh, the first one by Vess L. Osman, the second one by Seuss's Band, led by the writer of the song himself, Mr. Arthur Pryor. Um, quite a jaunty tune again. We've been high on the jauntiness so far, mm. haven't we? You mm. mentioned something about a fairground. You're hearing this isn't on a fairground, right? Yeah, I, I was at uh, Bliss Hill in Shropshire, uh, which is near my, my, my uh, sister lives there. Mm. Uh, well, not she doesn't live in Bliss Hill. <laughs> Um, yeah, there was a, an old. This one of these living museums. They had a fairground, and the carousel there was playing uh, playing this song. Obviously, they didn't announce the name. That would have been awful. But um, yeah, I recognised it. Oh, I know that song. They they played uh, "Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight" as well. So um, yeah, it's a very odd, very odd thing. Let's spread our net a bit wider to other popular culture in the year 1900. Um, this is a interesting thing is the first uh, the first uh, sound film in a way we 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 did have a sound film before with uh, music mm. this would say the first sound film uh with speech you could say and oh. it's in color as well mm. um so it's a, a a scene from serrano de bergerac in french of mm. course and uh yeah it's a color sound film it's a short clip but it exists and it comes from this year let's uh, have a listen to that it's pretty it's short Lentement l'abandon du grand manteau qui me calfeutre, 
Et je tire mon effradant. Élégant comme Céladon, agile comme Scaramouche. Okay, a scene there from uh, the, 19, the, the 1900 film of Serrano de Bergerac. The only scene, in fact. <laughs> and uh, if you if you would like to see the visuals that go along with that, just go and go onto YouTube, search for Serrano 1900. There's p- quite a few people have uploaded it. What, what did you make of that? I was quite pleasantly surprised by the quality of both the video and the sound, actually. I thought it was quite impressive. Was each film, when shown, given with a cylinder? Or was it only shown at one time at one place and never this is, brought the thunder with me? This is this is an experimental sound film, right? So um, it wasn't there wasn't a standardised way of doing it. It was, uh, yeah, played on a cylinder while the film played on the screen, um, and it was a it's a one off thing really. It was mm. an experiment. We have various different formats of sound film until they finally take off in 1927, um, but we'll, we'll come to some of those a bit later. Um, so what else was going on in the world of uh, culture in the year 1900? Uh, so we have the first edition of The Wizard of Oz. Mm. It's produced in 1900. It sells over 25,000 copies in two runs in the first year alone. That's quite a lot, is it's it? It's quite a lot, for especially this era. Um, okay. it's, I don't know how many of you have actually read the book, but it is quite different to the film. Saying it's a lot darker, actually, in, in many places. It's a strange book. It's a very, very strange book. They have to, mm-hmm. the, the, the witch, the wicked witch, sends bees and crows and things, and they are perceived to be eaten, have their spine snapped, etc., by uh, Dorothy and her companions. Wow. So it's a bit darker than the the uh, film, but it's, it's, it is a true classic in the 1900s. It takes off very quickly. And yeah. many sequels. Yes, many, wrote, many sequels. He wrote a load of sequels to yeah. it uh, before he died about 20 years later. Mm. It's very much as a golden age of American literature, I think. And how, let's, let's move into the world of uh, great statesmen. We have an uh, interesting recording here. Uh, this is a recording of uh, Emperor Franz Joseph of Austria. Yes. Um, who, he wasn't doing anything particular at this time. How, how old was he at this time? Oh, God, he's in his 60s at this point. He's been ruling since mm. the 1840s. Okay. Um, is this is this is the one who would lead into the yes. First World War? He is, the same one. He is the penultimate emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Really, he's the last emperor because the last emperor didn't do very much. Okay, so um, he's, he's ancient when we get into the First yes, World War, isn't yes, he? Yes, he's absolutely ancient. He mm. is considered the father of the nation at this point. He's absolutely beloved by a lot of his subjects. Mm-hmm. He is very conservative, very resistant to... Uh, reform, but as we as we're about to find out, actually quite interested in modern technology. Oh yeah, well he'll he'll spend a minute on it at least. Yes, he has made recordings. He made recordings uh, with um, Ludwig Karl Koch. He mm. made a recording with him, but uh, unfortunately that was lost um, with most of his recordings in the Second World War. So in this time, he's he, he's making another recording. It's not his first recording. It's his first surviving recording. And it's at an exhibition given by a man called Valdemar Poulsen. Mm. Valdemar Poulsen invented something called a telegraphone. Um, it's not what I think it is, is a, it? A telegraphone. It, well, the it's a cross between a telegraph and a gramophone, you could say. It, well, it's got something that has... It's kind of one, kind of the other, and it has extra features as well. Mm. It doesn't really send things, although the plan was to send signals eventually. Right. It records sound magnetically. It's the first magnetic right. sound recorder, but it doesn't record it on tape. It rec- records it on a thin piece of steel wire. So okay. you've got a long piece of coiled wire which has a sound on it. And uh, it 
makes a very different sound to the cylinder in disc recordings. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's very odd. It would uh, bubble under for a long time. There's various versions of it. Eventually, it would uh, become... a the uh, Germans started to develop it in the 1930s right. when the USA invaded Germany at the end of the Second World War they captured some of these uh, magnetic tape recorders mm. and that's the basis of magnetic tape recording really? it was brought to the USA and uh, it was uh, experimented on a bit but it really took off when uh, Bing Crosby started using it to record his radio shows in advance oh. and uh, yeah that's where magnetic tape history. took off and that's uh, it took over recording studios it was that's why we've got different tracks and recording studios so um, there's a, a long and prestigious history from this one recording this is the only recording we have from uh, uh, one of this uh, wire recordings I've given it quite a Quite a prelude so far. It's not a particularly special recording. It's nine seconds long. Let's have a listen to Emperor Emperor Franz Joseph. So quite a different sound to these Mm. cylinders and discs, isn't it? Yes, kind of ringing sound almost. Well, the the uh, the sound kind of seems to leak around the coils. Mm. So you've got. Sounds from one coil kind of leaking into the next coil, which gives you that kind of echoey sound. Mm. Um, it's uh, quite an odd thing, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there you go. Uh, not that important so far, but it will be very important. Um, okay, so that's in Europe. We have uh, Emperor Franz Joseph not doing so much apart from recording that. How about uh, around the world? Uh, Imperial. Yes. So we are England, the United Kingdom, I should say, is currently fighting the Second Boer War. Right, the uh, second one. When second was the one, first one? Oh, the early ni- 1890s. Okay. Um, effectively, this is a war over uh, the United Kingdom's control of South Africa. Uh, the war extends from 1899 to 1901. Britain struggles against the Boers and their guerrilla tactics for a couple of years, but eventually over 20,000 British regulars arrives and steamrolls the Boers and combines the two Boer... Uh, states of the South African Republic and the Orange Free State into the South African Union or the Union of South Africa hmm. uh, which then becomes a British protector and remains so for the next 20-30 years So there's a bit of a grim war isn't there? Very grim war, it divides British um, opinion at home bitterly, David Lloyd George makes his first start attacking the British uh, actions in this war it's very brutal. Um, it's actually the first recorded uses of concentration camps. Yeah. Not by the Nazis in the 1930s, but by us, the United Kingdom and the, in South Africa. Mm. Where they round up a lot of undesirable South Africans and put them in camps. Wow. Um, but yeah, in the end, England, United Kingdom succeeds, creates this new protectorate and all is well in the empire. Mm. Um, but no. Yeah. Oh, and uh, yeah, Churchill was there, wasn't he? Yes, Churchill was there in some minor capacity. I believe he served. I think he was a journalist and he, yes. he got himself captured and escaped, as according to his book. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. And we, some people say this is kind of the beginning of the end of the British Empire, mm. where we realised we've uh, pushed it too far, perhaps. Some call it our Vietnam, yes. It's, it's that same fighting guerrillas and thinking, what are we doing this for? Um, but it is the last expansion of the British Empire until past World War One, uh, where we take over some protectorates. Um, so mm. we are in... 
I think if you ask someone on the 1900s, they would say the British Empire is already, you know, it is at its zenith. We're doing fine. The empire will long continue. But looking mm. back, we can say this may be the high point of it. It may be all downhill from now on. In. It's the first kind of feeling that yeah. uh, we're not invulnerable. We we could be defeated. And by also, a, yeah. And also the United Kingdom starts to question itself, I think, in a way it hasn't before about the rightness of its imperial ventures. Mm-hmm. Were there, were there horses involved in this war? Yes, there certainly were. Horses remain vital up until World War One. Now, we have a cavalry regiment there, so yes. uh, it's a very tenuous connection I'm trying to build but in there. there is one nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, the tenuous connection to... Uh, this is a, a xylophone solo by Mr Charles P. Lowe, and it's called Brilliant Gallop. Charles P. Lowe there with Brilliant Gallop, a, uh, I keep saying jaunty, but it's a very uh, high-tempo, exciting piece. The xylophone was a big instrument at this time. Mm. It's one of the, the one of the ones that you keep coming across solos on. I feel when we're getting to the jazz age and forward, the xylophone is no longer so important. Yes. Maybe for the best. Maybe for the best. We have plenty of examples of uh, virtuoso. Uh, xylophone playing from these years mm. and maybe that's enough maybe that is enough maybe that is no enough. when to stop um should we talk about uh haig william haig no, not william haig not william haig the 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 haig the um the haig the haig the court so he's not the haig no he's not the haig no, okay. I, I bet he probably thinks he does no, uh um so the Hague, the uh, forerunner to the international court, is founded in 1900. The Hague and the Olympics are getting two new modern institutions, not modern, yeah, familiar to us today, that are set up in 1900, which is reinforcing, I feel, the idea that while 1900 may not be the turn of a new century in that it's not substantially different from 1899, we are beginning to see the first roots of what we would be familiar with today. Hmm? Uh, I suppose what the question I wanted to ask was, is that the same with music? Are we still are we turning towards modern music at long last, or are we still? Well, in... I think we we see we see uh, years where suddenly everything lurches forward. Yeah, and I think it's not one of those years. Okay, I think we had one of those years in uh, eighteen ninety seven. Yep, 
and I think we're going to see another one of them in, um, yeah, um, I think there's another one of them in a few years, let's say, uh, right. maybe next year even. Um, but I think it's kind of a slow a slow progress generally. Mm-hmm. And there's huge ones coming up in, for example, 1917 and like 1923, mm. gigantic leaps forward in those years. And we'll see them again throughout musical history, um, getting closer and closer perhaps. Although less in the recent years, perhaps. I suppose it's hard for us to see because we're closer to them. Uh, yes, I'd say so. But I, I don't know if the, the world of music is as unrecognisable to us, to somebody 10 years ago. Mm. I think it would be pretty recognisable, the world of music now, to somebody 10 years ago, which would not Agreed. be the case through the 50s, 60s, 70s. I'd say 10 years is a world of difference through those decades. Centuries of sound on Cambridge 105 Radio. So one one thing we talked about a little last time was mm. uh, the world of vaudeville. Yeah, and uh, we are getting more vaudeville recordings now instead of minstrel shows, which is kind of a relief. And uh, of course, people these days think of vaudeville; they think of the uh, comedy sketches. Mm. This is a a comedy sketch that you heard quite a lot. It's called the Arkansas Traveller, right. and uh, there was a there was a, a folk song on the fiddle called the Arkansas Traveller. And it was built into a kind of comedy routine. So there'd be a lost traveling city mm-hmm. person and he would meet a local wisecracking fiddle player. And then they'd make various jokes about uh, the uh, fiddle player deliberately misunderstanding him. Let's hear the earliest recording of uh, the Arkansas Traveller. It's uh, Len Spencer, who's always available to play on anything, it seems. Mm-hmm. And uh, with the famous violin player, George Schweinfest. Arkansas Traveler by Spencer and Swainfest, Columbia Records. Why, how do you do, boss? What might your name be? Say, what made you think I was boss, yeah? Well, I just guessed it. Well, guess what my name is. Oh, <laughs> how far is it to the next crossroads? Well, just follow your nose and you'll come to it. Oh. <laughs> uh, just one moment now. Where does this road go to? Why, you don't go anywhere. Hey, it's just what it is. Why, see here, I'm a lawyer and a pretty smart one, too. Do I look it? Well, yes. Now, I had a lawsuit about this year house about a year ago. Well, did you have a smart lawyer? Yeah, you just bet I did. He owns the house now. <laughs> Here, there's a leak in the roof of your house. Why don't you get it fixed? Because it's been a raining lately. Yes, why don't you get it fixed when it's not raining? Because when it don't rain, it don't leak. (laughs) Well, for pity's sake, play the rest of that tune. Well, I just reckon there's no man living smart enough to do that. Oh, yes, there is. I can if you'll let me. Well, thank you. Shout a stranger. Well, you're the smartest man of living. Come right in, come right inside. <laughs> so some 119-year-old comedy there. It's uh, not completely unfunny. No. 
No, there were some things that were vaguely funny there. Some jokes you might still recognise. If you hear those jokes going on these days, then, uh, yeah, you know you know <laughs> how old they are. Um, yeah, I think I have heard some of those being being told by people these days as well. So, yes. you know, quite how old those jokes are, at least 119 years old, probably older. Um, okay, let's... Uh, Let's hear this. I don't have much of an introduction for this. This is uh, Charles Dalmain and uh, Polish National Dance. Okay, so Charles Dalmain there, a famous violin player. A few words about him. Uh, he was a violinist with the New York Metropolitan Orchestra and a chiropractor as well, apparently. <laughs> uh, he, yeah, he's best known today for his prolific activity as a pioneer recording artist. He made many, many recordings at this time. He was the violin soloist of choice, both for Edison Records and for Victor Records, wow. so both of the big two there. And uh, yeah, he made many, many recordings. This is just one of them. I don't know what connection it has to Poland, but it was called the Polish National Dance, apparently. Um, let's have a recording here from a man called uh, Alessandro Moreschi. Have you heard the name of Alessandro Moreschi before? I have not. Mm, it's an interesting recording. We'll, we'll talk more about him next time. Um, but... Uh, I'd just like to play it now and see if you can notice anything odd about his voice. Um, yeah. Impossible to pick out his voice there unless you're listening for it. We'll, we'll come back to him later. It'd be a nice surprise next time, I think. 
little prelude there. Yeah, prelude. Well, it's the whole choir. You can't really pick out his voice in particular, but it is an interesting thing we're going to find out about. Let's talk about William Jennings Bryan. He's uh, just lost a second presidential election. He has. But at this time, he decides to... Well, we've got a recording of his voice, finally, to have a talk Mm. to us about imperialism. So who is William Jennings Bryan? William Jennings Bryan is one of the foremost democratic figures of... And I took up the Democrats, I mean, the the Democratic Party. We had... We talked about before his... uh, When he was standing for election the first time, he had a speech about... uh, uh, silver he, and gold. Silver and gold. Yes. Yeah, he wanted to change from the gold standard to the silver, silver. standard. Yes, he okay. is a great progressive figure. Um, so that was in the last election. Four years on, the economy is doing well, and so the gold and silver standard have largely lost their potency. So he fights the second election on the issues of imperialism. Mm-hmm. He is for Cuban independence and eventual assumption into the United States. He is for American non-intervention elsewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, he, as you know, loses the uh, second election, but he is a great yeah. figure in American history. Later on, has some slightly weird views. He attacks the uh, the uh, teaching of evolution in schools. Um, oh, with that famous trial he's involved yes. in, yeah. But at um, least he won't stand for president again. Well, he does stand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in eight years' time. Um, but no, so this is the hot issue of the 1900 elections he's mm. speaking on. He doesn't stand against uh, Roosevelt. He seems to like Roosevelt, doesn't he? No, I think Roosevelt's progressive enough of a figure that he stands with him. He stands against William Howard Taft. Okay. In 1908. So another another walrus. Yes. Uh, coming he does up. look like a walrus. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the uh, qualifying things to be a presidential candidate in this time. Um, let's let's hear William Jennings Bryan talk about imperialism then. I can conceive of a national destiny which meets the responsibilities of today and measures up to the possibilities of tomorrow. Behold a republic, resting securely upon the mountain of eternal truth, a republic applying in practice and pertaining to the world the self-evident proposition that all men are created equal, that they're endowed with inalienable rights, that governments are instituted in among men to secure these rights, and that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Behold a republic in which civil and religious liberty stimulate all to earnest endeavor and in which the law restrains every hand uplifted for a neighbor's injury. A republic in which every citizen is a sovereign but in which no one cares to wear a crown. Behold a republic standing erect while empires all around or bowed beneath the weight of their own armament, a republic whose flag is love, while other flags are only fears. The whole republic, increasing in population, in wealth, in strength, and in influence, solving the problems of civilization, and hastening the coming of a universal brotherhood. A republic which shapes thrones and dissolves aristocracies, by its silent example, and gives lighted inspiration to those who sit in darkness. Behold a republic, gradually but surely becoming a supreme moral factor in the world's progress and the accepted arbiter of the world's dispute. A republic whose history, like the path of the just, is as the shining light that shineth more and more until the perfect day. Quite a, a I don't know, a, 
very patriotic speech. Obviously, you yes. need to be patriotic if you're an American presidential candidate. Uh, a little bit uh, messianic, perhaps. Yes, <laughs> and the irony of saying that while calling for the armament of the National Guard and effectively evading Cuba. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's many kind of contradictions from all the politicians of this time, oh, it yeah. seems, from our from our modern perspective. Maybe we shouldn't judge him quite so much on this. Although um, we'll have some political speeches coming up a while later mm. where I kind of agree with everything they say, which is uh, going to be odd when that comes up. See if you can guess the speaker which James is referring to. You will not guess. You will not guess. It's a strange one. Um, to come much later. Let's uh, let's have a look at politics all around the world. Um, what's going on in, for example, Asia right now? So China is fighting with pretty much anyone with any interest in getting a slice of the imperial pie in mm-hmm. the Boxer War. Uh, so the Boxer Rebellion. The Boxer yeah. Rebellion, thank you very much. Um, well, it's a very it's a very odd war, mm. I would say, um, because uh, you, listeners might not realise I spend most of my adult life in China, so I know more about Chinese history than about uh, other countries, except perhaps Britain or America. <laughs> mm. uh, but yeah, uh, I did live in Beijing for uh, five years or so, so I've, I've seen all the places that were uh, attacked during the Boxer Rebellion mm. and uh, heard the history of it. Why is it called the Boxer Rebellion, do you know? Uh, it's named because it was after uh, boxers, wasn't it? A lot of the people who started the rebellion were boxers. Well, uh, we called them boxers. Mm. Mar- martial artists, yeah. like we would say Kung Fu or something, uh, they were kind of a religious group which mm. decided that they were, if they practiced certain exercises, they'd be immune to yes. bullets, mm. which they were not. Um and yeah, they uh, there were a lot of uh, outrages against uh, against Chinese people before this. Oh yeah, because uh, foreign powers were kind of invading and taking advantage, and well, not not really invading, but just taking over and uh, doing terrible things to local Chinese people. Mm-hmm. They, it was a natural that something would happen eventually. Yes. The Chinese government was uh, led by this woman Cixi, who was uh, yeah, no one really looks back on her very well. Um, so they, they they kind of rose up and started killing missionaries and killing Christians as well, mm. um, like local uh, Chinese people who converted. All the foreigners eventually uh, were pushed into the, the district of Beijing with uh, all the foreign embassies in it. And uh, they had a siege there, which lasted quite a while. And um, the the forces of Britain and America and France and Japan and, and some Germany other countries... And- yeah, they all got together. At one time, those countries had all been united and invaded at the same time. And, uh, the, uh, of course, Chinese lost and had to pay a lot of money in reparations for that. And uh, an- another thing that uh, made China resent the West a lot more, and for good reason mm. as well. And uh, I think Chinese people have not forgotten <laughs> the invasion during the Boxer no. Rebellion. They have not forgotten this at all. One of the many kind of... Uh, uh, unnecessary humiliations that were imposed uh, during the time of the late Qing dynasty, which uh, uh, we really, I think we should be educated about in the West mm. because we did some bad things during that time. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, sorry. Anyway, that's that's the Boxer Rebellion. Yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's, uh, let's hear some things from East Asia. We don't have any Chinese recordings. Uh, we've got one from, uh, uh, well, it's from Berlin, really, but it's... Uh, a uh, Thai 
uh, well, Siamese, they would say at this time, uh, theatre ensemble. Uh, but before that, a Japanese piece uh, by uh, Opa Kekepi, and it's called Kawakami Noboro Isiao. I think that's right. It's probably completely wrong, but let's hear those. <laughs> ばかりあおせれておせれてぽぺぽぽ So more kind of xylophone stuff there. Well, not a xylophone, mm. a marimba or something. Anyway, uh, or whatever they have in uh, Siam, mm. or Thailand, uh, local instruments there. Um, so lots of music going on around the world. I think world music is at this point uh, un- untainted by, not to be tainted in a bad way, but uh, untouched, let's say, yeah. by uh, Western music. So mm. you've got kind of the original traditional music there mm. going on. Um 
Whereas these days, if they do that, it feels kind of... Uh, Westernised. Yeah, it, it's like they're, they're looking for something that's not there anymore. Mm. They're trying to find the history that's not there rather than the music that people in those places really do listen to. So, mm. um, uh, yeah, th- this time it's still alive. So it's kind of interesting for that reason. Yeah. Let's have a listen to our old friend Arthur Collins. Yes, This let's... is a uh, classic recording of his. Uh, it's called uh, Mandy Lee. Not Mandy, as I first thought and got excited. It's not the famous song Mandy as popularised by Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow. And with the clothes with harmony 
Arthur Collins, King of the Ragtime Singers there with Mandy Lee. It's a much better kind of singer than we've previously heard, don't you think? Yes, his technique is there and it's... He's got, he's got character and kind of mm. warmth to him. He is doing an imitation that's kind of racist of a black man. But, you know, still, it's an, it's an improvement on the worst ones we've heard before, I'd say. Definitely so. The biggest selling artist of this decade. So, uh, and a, a star of the size of like Elvis at his time, but kind of forgotten these days. And uh, unfortunately, he shares a name with an acid attacker in the last year or so. I'm sure the acid attacker will be forgotten fairly soon, though. Centuries of Sound on Cambridge 105 Radio. You've been listening to Centuries of Sound on Cambridge 105 Radio. I've been James. And I've been Sean. And if you like what you've heard here today, please feel free to come along to our website, which is at centuriesofsound.com. If you come along there, you can find our regular monthly mixes, which are currently on 1911, background information, lots, lots more. If you want to email us, the email address is centuriesofsoundmail, that's all one word, at gmail.com. And uh, you can find us on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, of course, as well. So what do you make of the music and other sounds of 1900? I really enjoyed Arthur Collins, I've got to say. Yep, he's a, he's a step up for sure. He is. I don't know if you heard uh, Hello My Baby last week, but yeah. it was already already uh, a star there. I mean, maybe the first good singing star <laughs> that we've heard. Probably the most professional sounding singer I think we've heard so far. He he's got this business down. He knows he knows how to put kind of a, a warmth and a performance into his voice. Mm. Um, the other big star of this year we're going to play out on is uh, Vessel Osman again, uh, the uh, famous banjo player, maybe the the greatest ever banjo player. And uh, this is him playing the standard uh, old folks at home. Do you know the old folks at home? No. Mm, you do because it's also called Swanee River. Ah. Um, yeah, it's a. Another one of these performances where he manages to take one of these standards and put something extra into it uh, in a kind of proto-ragtime kind of style. Thanks for listening today. We'll see you again next time. Bye-bye.
If you enjoy these programs, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. For $5 or local equivalent per month, you can get full downloads of mixes and these radio podcasts a year earlier. Centuries of Sound is an independent podcast without any advertising, and it's only with the support of patrons that the show can survive. Find out more at patreon.com slash centuries of sound.